around our country today, people will, especially tomorrow, but churches across America this weekend, we will pause and say a tremendous thank you to men and women who have served and continue to do so for this nation. It's Veterans Day weekend. And if you are a veteran of the armed services of the United States of America, either actively serving or have served, would you please stand uh, today to give us an opportunity to recognize you and your service to this country? All over the sanctuary today, men and women have stood, and they represent countless thousands of others. And if someone near you stood, make a mental note. Don't let them get out of the building without saying thank you. And on behalf of this church, I say, in a way words don't seem to express it adequately, but for, for the sake of the church, I say thank you today. Speaking of soldiers, we are jumping into a study about a man who was one of the greatest spiritual soldiers of all time. This week we're going to look at the final days of the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. Since the beginning of this year, we have moved rapidly through a study of the Scriptures in hopes that we would grasp the big picture, the grand story, or to line up with the wording that we've used all year long, that we would grasp the upper story of God. The only way that we will ever truly know how to gain perspective on our lower story lives is to know how it fits into the grand story or the upper story of God. Next week, I will conclude this 31-week journey with a message entitled, The End of Time. And I promise you, you're going to be encouraged and inspired by the way the story ends. Last week, we studied the beginning part of Paul's life and ministry. He's a guy who literally sought out Christians to kill them. And then he has this dramatic conversion experience to Christ. And he moves from being an antagonist to being an evangelist. He actually wrote... 13 books of what we now call the New Testament. Uh, And the last verse of the book of Acts, Luke wrote the book of Acts. And the very last verse, Luke describes Paul in a powerful way, Acts 28, 31. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness and without hindrance. As Paul aged, he was not content to sit back, relax, retire and reminisce about all the good he did. He was under house arrest for the majority of the second portion of his life. He was about to face the Roman emperor for his crime, his only crime being a devoted follower of Christ and a preacher of the gospel. He spent several years under house arrest in Rome. The Bible doesn't give us all of the specifics, but we can gather from other historical first century documents that Paul was released for a time from prison and then rearrested again in Rome. And the last time he was arrested, he was chained, placed in a dungeon, and eventually executed for his crimes. Before he died, he wrote several letters to churches and friends, and it's these small, short letters that make up the shorter books at the second part of the back half of the New Testament. Paul is about to leave the scene, step off the earthly scene, and the question is, who's going to take over? People knew that his execution was imminent without some miracle. Who's going to take over? And to make that clear, Paul passed the torch on to several young leaders. One of them happened to be Timothy. 
The torch is not just being passed to Timothy, but by, by an extension, it is being passed to all of us. So as Paul is passing the torch to Timothy, we would do well to pay attention uh, of what Paul had to say to Timothy because his last words to Timothy are in essence his last words to us. The book that we're going to read from today is 2 Timothy. It's called 2 Timothy because it's the second letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. And you can find your place to chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3. I will read there in just a second. There is a chance for Paul at this moment of his life in prison, knowing he probably faces execution, to talk about some things that are the most important to him. He knows his crossing over into eternity is very near. His days are few. And if anything, 23 years of ministry has taught me, it has taught me to pay special attention to the words of dying people. To pay special attention to the words of people who know their time is short. They don't mince words. They say the things that that they wanted to say all of their life. And many of them, I've listened, struggled through uh, abated breath as as they take their last breath to say some of the last words of their family or to pass on some last things about living the life of faith. You listen closely to people's words who know their time is short. That's what this book is. Even in these last final weeks of his life, in the midst of suffering, Paul is able to find satisfaction and peace in his relationship with Jesus. He had this dramatic conversion experience and his transformed life and this relationship that he's been able to establish with Christ endures, gives him the power to endure. He has a confidence of what God has in store for him and he knows the finish line is in sight. So in this book, he gives his summary of his faithfulness in life and his fearlessness in death. And he reveals to Timothy some advice that you need to have when you're facing hardship. It's the way Paul responded to hardship. And these are his words of wisdom to a young believer on how he should respond to hardship. Response number one, keep enduring. I could tell you several, but let me just point out four. Keep enduring. He writes to his protege in Luke chapter, or excuse me, uh, Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Listen to what he says in verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of it. Because you know those from whom you learned it. Not only did Paul promise persecution, but Jesus told us that this life would be full of tribulation and trial. They go with the territory of when you name him as the Lord of your life. Being a Christ follower stands in stark contrast to more popular, politically correct choices. It did in Paul's day, and it does in our day. And Paul tells Timothy to persevere through the the persecution, to follow his example of endurance, to depend upon God. And he reminds Timothy that anyone who follows Christ can expect trouble. They can expect persecution. 
Uh, I am having an opportunity to, to walk through a journey called Starting Point with a few new friends who are either uh, hungry to follow Christ and not yet decided to do so. They are new in following Christ or they are re-engaging in their, the faith of their childhood, but have been away from it as adults. And several of them mentioned last week that, you know, they had this idea that coming to Jesus was going to make life easier. And it's almost like the battle got turned up a notch or two when they decided to follow Jesus. And it's amazing that just a few months in, the intuition that they have, and it is very innocent reality, that following Christ is not a guarantee of an easy life. Trials will come your way. You've got to keep enduring. At work, you may be expected to compromise your ethics for the sake of the sale, but keep enduring. In your friendships, you may be ridiculed for your newfound faith, but keep enduring. In your dating relationship, you may be pressured to be intimate sexually before marriage. Don't. Keep enduring toward purity in your marriage you may have extended family coming over for thanksgiving keep enduring (laughs) Jesus made promises to his followers and one of them was the guarantee that life as a follower of Christ would have trials and tribulations it's tough there will be challenges but he also promises us his presence in every trial we never walk alone where there be trouble yes will we ever be alone no he is with us even in the valley of the shadow of death so the the promise of his presence is motivation to keep enduring the second piece of advice he gives Timothy is to keep reading 2 Timothy chapter 3, from infancy, he says in verse 15, from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That word useful in verse 16, I mean, look at that. That word useful, it, it simply means if all Scripture is useful, then the Christian life without Scripture is useless. The Bible equips every believer for good work. The Scripture was so important to Paul that if he's going to pass on some key things to Timothy, he was going to be intentional to make sure the value of Scripture was passed on to this young believer. And if we're going to follow after the footsteps of Paul and inevitably after the footsteps of Jesus, we need to be equipped by the Word of God. The Word of God teaches us at times. It rebukes us at times, corrects us at times, trains us in righteousness at other times. So we have to keep reading, keep studying. When you're confused or depressed or frustrated or disappointed, keep turning to this book. This is where we go. And let me challenge you. We have read through the story this year, and some of you have gotten a copy. I found, we bought hundreds of copies at the beginning of the year. I found out a minute ago we have eight left. As we head at the end of a year and begin a new year, many of us will jump into reading the Word, trying to read it through in a year. If you haven't got a copy, pick up one of these last eight copies of the story and make it a part of your New Year's reading plan to keep reading the Word of God. Some of you that bought a copy, it's a chronologically arranged version of Scripture. If you bought it and it's been sitting on the shelf, 
stuff for six weeks, get it back out. Keep reading. If you don't have a copy, don't want a copy, pick out your Bible, open it up, and keep reading. This entire year, one of our reasons for preaching through the story is to better acquaint you with the Bible so that you don't approach this big, thick book with a sense of fear and worry because you don't understand it. Now, we have been through this journey. You get the flow of it. You understand the big message. And from Genesis to Revelation, the message is God is doing everything within His power to bring an exiled people, a wayward people, back into relationship with Him. And He is faithful even when we are not. And when you begin to see the Scripture unfold, you see how God's work works. You see His will unfold. You understand how the upper story of God intersects with the lower story events of your life. And you can be convinced that God is deeply involved in the fabric of your life. So keep enduring life and keep reading His Word. Another piece of advice is found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 1. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of His appearing in His kingdom, I give you this charge. So in view of the Lord's return, I give you this charge, Timothy. Preach the Word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Paul told Timothy and to us, a day like the day we live in was coming. I remember that, that charge, preach the word, 17 years ago, I was ordained into the ministry. I had credentials several years earlier, but our fellowship only allows you to be ordained at a minimum age of 23. They want there to be some degree of maturity when you get the highest level of ecclesiastical credential and ordination. And I remember that service. It was a service almost like a graduation. A preacher spoke that night. All of the ministers being ordained came forward. There was a row of presbytery that these elderly men who, who were, were statesmen and heroes in my eyes They had a mantle around their neck that would be symbolic of them placing this mantle of ordination from the church upon my shoulders. And right before they passed that mantle, the preacher that night read a charge. And out of that charge, he read this verse of Scripture. And it still rings in my ears because when he said it, he said, Preach the Word with that kind of authority and passion. And he paused to let it sink in. And 17 years later, it still reverberates in my spirit. Preach the Word. That's what Paul says to Timothy. Keep preaching. And it's a mistake to think that preaching is only for paid pastors on Sundays behind the pulpit. The Bible describes preaching as sharing or telling or announcing the good news. One translation of preacher is a public crier. It doesn't mean somebody emotional in public. It means a herald. It means an announcer. Somebody telling good news. Think about it. The angels at the birth of Jesus in Luke 2 were preachers of the good news when they made this announcement in verse 10 the angel said to them do not be afraid I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people today in the town of David a savior has been born to you he is the Messiah the Lord the the angels preached the gospel preaching is not delivery of sermons in a worship service that's part of it but it's about every Christian being prepared to tell the good news of God the difference that Jesus 
has made in their life. Paul charges all of us with that duty. Jesus even looked at all of his followers and said, You are my witnesses. Not those in vocational ministry and everybody else is off the hook. He said to the church, You are my witnesses. In 1 Peter 3.15, Peter writes, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Be ready and willing to share the difference Jesus has made in your life. What has Jesus done in you? What has He done through you? What has He done to you? Tell the story. Don't you have good news about your past? If you met Jesus, you do, because it's covered, forgiven, gone. Don't you have good news about your present? If you're a believer, you do, because the kingdom of God has come. He lives in you. He is around you. Don't you have good news about your future? If you're a believer in Jesus, you do, because your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and heaven is going to be your home. We have good news. And like the Christmas song says, we need to live it out. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills, and everywhere. One of my favorite quotes is attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. He said, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. You can preach the gospel in the way you conduct business. You can preach the gospel in the way you parent children. You can preach the gospel in the way you live your life. And if necessary, use words. For 30 years of ministry, Paul had witnessed and worked throughout the Mediterranean world. He has been helped and hated. He has been assisted and attacked. He has been commended and cursed. And whatever else may be said of Paul's life, it was anything but dull. In fact, everywhere he went, he either started a riot or a revival, and sometimes both happened. And he always endured imprisonment, and he always anticipated execution. He goes on to give some advice to Timothy In 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 6 he says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time of my departure is near. What does it mean to be poured out like a drink offering? In ancient Rome, banquets would commonly conclude with a particular ritual. The symbolic act of pouring out onto the ground a cup of wine in honor of a Roman god. So here Paul borrows from some common cultural imagery that everyone would have been acquainted with. He describes his life as that offering that is being poured out, a drink offering, but not for a pagan God, but for the Lord Jesus Christ. And in effect, he is saying, the Roman authorities will not take my life. Just like Jesus, I will surrender my life for a greater purpose. I have lived surrendered in living, and I will be surrendered in dying. I am living a... a, a living sacrifice, I will complete that sacrifice by laying down my life for the one who has given his life for me. So Paul, in his fourth admonishment in hardship to Timothy, he said, whatever comes your way, keep pouring. Keep emptying yourself for Christ as a drink offering to his name. These words were written shortly before Paul was executed in AD 66. And that execution occurred at the decree of a Roman emperor. It's a Roman emperor that we have become famous, that we have become well known historically as Nero. But a lot of people don't realize that Paul's life and Nero's life overlapped. 
They both lived in Rome, and everyone was fascinated with Nero, a young, flamboyant leader emperor. The rich and the famous bowed down to him. He would have been on the cover of every magazine. He would have had an astronomical following on Twitter. Paul, in contrast, was seen as a guy that started out normal. He had a lot of hope. There was a lot of upside for Paul. He was the golden child who had everything going for him. Changed, trained in the best private schools. Intellectually astute. Uh, he, was, he was gifted. He had a position of authority. He was being groomed for greatness. And then one day carrying out his duty, he said he, he saw this man Jesus. And, and he, he supposedly had this religious experience. And after that moment, in the eyes of society, he became a weirdo. He is now viewed later in life as an old man, an odd religious old man and and he's an eccentric fanatic who always talks about Jesus of Nazareth being the one true living God and since he's constantly talking about Jesus and he's preaching the gospel and establishing churches Rome did to what Rome did to those kind of people he threw they threw him in prison so while Paul is suffering and growing old in prison Nero is enjoying the palace he's enjoying the spotlight If you were to ask anyone who would have been alive back then who was going to make the greatest impact in the world, Nero or Paul, they would say, obviously Nero, and who are you talking about? Who is this Paul? Because he was locked away in obscurity in a prison cell. Nero had everything going for him. He was married to a lady named Pope Sabina, and she was a beautiful blonde who took baths in milk to keep her skin soft every day by the order of Nero. Her attendants would come bathe her in this huge container filled with milk. And by a strange twist of fate, at the age of 30, she died when she became lactose intolerant. No, I'm just kidding. That was, that, that's not in there. It was all true to that last statement. So don't, don't write that down in your notes. I just couldn't help but throw that in there. I was reading the history stuff, and, and I just thought, why is she have been lactose intolerant? So I had to put that in there. It's not in there. The truth is, they really did give her daily baths and milk. In fact, Nero had 400 donkeys that were kept right next to his palace for the purpose of harvesting their milk for her to take baths in to keep their, her skin soft. And then the servants would dry her with swan feathers and they would massage her hands with the feet of the mucus of crocodiles. Now, I don't know what guy figured out somewhere along the way that the mucus of crocodiles made your hands and feet soft, but uh, I guess they didn't have Bath and Body Works back then. I guess it didn't catch on because it's not at Bath and Body Works now, but somewhere the mucus of crocodiles was thought. And so why did they do this? Because Nero got what Nero wanted. And if, the, if he wanted a wife with soft skin, then she had to spend her whole time having soft skin. When Nero was 25 years of age... He constructed the Colossus, and it was a huge statue, 120 foot tall, and guess whose image was at the top of it? Nero. By contrast, Paul was described in ancient first century literature as being small in stature, bow-legged, he had a unibrow, his eyebrow went all the way across his head, he had a larger than normal nose, scars spider-webbed his back. And a hard life had stiffened his joints as he walked humped and slow. Quite a contrast from Nero's looks and reputation. But Paul knows if we keep enduring, if we keep reading, if we keep preaching, 
if we keep pouring ourselves as a drink offering out for Christ, then we can look back on our life, no matter how difficult, no matter how frustrating, no matter how discouraging it's been, and we can say, we ran the race, we finished, we won. Paul says, when he says the time of my departure is at hand, he's inferring that his hardships will soon cease. The word departure is literally translated to hoist up an anchor and to set sail. I love that picture. It's so evident that Paul looked at his present hardships as an opportunity for God to intervene. But ultimately, death and hardship was a release from this world. Paul saw death as an opportunity to sail, to lift up the anchor of the cares and the concerns and sail into life forever in the presence of God. I am now in the process, he says, of making my final offering and pouring myself out before I leave this world, setting sail across death, his destination, the safe harbor of heaven for all of eternity. That's an amazing picture of all of us who have the hope of heaven. When you die, it doesn't mean the end. It means that you've been cut loose from the appendages of this life so that you can fully enjoy the life that God has ordained for you and an eternity with Him. Paul said in Acts 20 and 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. He is looking to and longing for his heavenly crown with anticipation. He looks ahead with confidence and certainty. He knew he was going to hear his Savior say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And when the battle is over, he knows he will wear a crown. Let me ask you a question I want you to think deeply about. Do you want your life to count for something? I mean, when you leave this earth, do you want to leave an impact that will last long after you're gone? If so, follow the example of Paul. He faced every sort of adversity, but he never cowered. He didn't compromise. One time he was stoned, left for dead. They thought he was dead. He was reinvigorated by prayer, got up, went back into the city where he was stoned. They thought they had killed him. He was shipwrecked. He was flogged. He was beaten. You name it, he experienced it. And yet it was this man who said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Because he knows when he gets to be with the Lord, Every injustice will be righted. Every wrong will be corrected. And he looked at his present hardships as an opportunity that would ultimately lead, in his case, to death that would release him to his eternal reward. Historical documents tell us shortly after the writing of these words in 2 Timothy that the Apostle Paul was beheaded. What began with a miraculous appearance of Jesus to Paul on the Damascus Road led him to a Roman chopping block. He died in obscurity. There was no headline, no 10 o'clock newscast covering the life. There was no lifetime achievement award. With Paul's departure at hand, Nero is rocketing to stardom. He was hot. Paul was not Nero was hero, Paul was zero. But the unfolding of history would tell a different story. Four years after the death of Paul, Nero was 29 years old. He goes to a servant's uh, apartment and he was distraught and despondent. 
paranoid and lonely. Why? His second wife had murdered his first wife. And in a fit of rage, Nero kicked his second wife in the stomach, who happened to be pregnant with their unborn child, and both mother and child died. In guilt and despondency, he flees to a servant's quarters where he takes his own life. You will never find a cathedral dedicated to Nero. But you don't have to look far in just about any city to find some edifice with St. Paul's name stamped on it. I've never read anything by Nero. But countless times my life has been encouraged by the spirit-inspired writings of the Apostle Paul. You probably don't know a single person named Nero, but you have met plenty Pauls and Paulines. And think about it for a moment. People name their sons Paul and their dogs Nero. Who made the greatest impact in the history of the world? Our goal is not to become legends. Our goal is to leave a legacy. And that's what Paul did. He sold out to the cause of Christ, regardless of the cost. Legends like Nero are great in the time in which they live. They live for the moment. TMZ, Extra, and Oprah are covering the live for the minute modern day legends. In the wake of history, pop culture legends will be forgotten. But somewhere today, there is an obscure man or an obscure woman that nobody knows is being faithful to God in the midst of a hardship. They will never be a legend, but they are leaving a legacy for those who follow after them. I know that when we talk about hardships, people ask, how did he survive one thing after another? We talked about that a little last week. He was, it says in Acts, one verse that we read last week says, after the hardship, they were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. And there was connection to being filled with the Spirit and being able to walk in joy in the midst of the hardship. But I know when you ask that question, it's not an academic question. I know you are asking that question because you are living it. You're facing your own challenges and your own struggles. Maybe you're underemployed or overburdened. Maybe you're relationally underwhelmed or financially overburdened or overwhelmed. Your storms are not on the Mediterranean Sea. They are health issues or personal attacks from neighbors and friends. Maybe somebody has belittled your faith or maybe you've been ignored or overlooked for a promotion. Can I remind you that the Christian life is not a hundred yard dash. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's an endurance race. And the real celebration doesn't begin until you stretch out your chest and cross the red tape at the finish line. Nero was on a path to greatness. Paul was on a, a road to defeat. But Paul ended up great and Nero ended up defeated. Nero started well and ended badly. Paul started badly and finished well it's not how you start it's how you finish and the question today are you a finisher in Paul's final words to Timothy it's some of the last words he ever wrote this is what he says second Timothy 4 7 I have fought the good fight I have finished the race I have kept the faith now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for His appearing. That last phrase, 
but to all who long for His appearing, tells us these words are not just to Timothy, but by extension, these admonishments are to all of us because He includes all of us who are Christ followers in that last statement. There is a crown of righteousness awaiting for all of us who long for His appearing. In the Olympic Games, ancient Olympic Games, a winning athlete was rewarded by a coveted laurel wreath that was to be worn as a crown. It was the greatest honor of any athlete in ancient times. But it was made of leaves. You've seen it. The green leaf crown that is so uh, central to the Olympic Games. But that green leafed crown would wither within a few days. And with the withering of that crown in the backdrop, Paul knows that what's in store for him is a crown of righteousness, he says, that will never fade away. In stark contrast to the momentary success of legends, Paul said, I choose to leave a legacy and make a down payment on a reward that I will get later. I will get a crown that will never fade away. And to all of those who are obedient to the Son of God, they will cross that tape and finish what well, that same crown is waiting for them. Paul knows that in a short time he's going to stand before a Roman judge who will not judge righteously. But he can bear that injustice and all of the injustices of his life because on the other side he is going to stand before a righteous judge, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who will make every momentary trial, every temporary challenge and difficulty will be worth it all. That's the reason the hymn writer was able to pin the words, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Every wrong will be righted, every injustice will be made right. He's going to fix it when I stand before God and all things will be well. Paul kept his sanity by looking forward to that day. Keep enduring. Keep reading. Keep preaching. Keep pouring. Let me give you one more piece before we finish. One of my claims to fame is teaching my young cousin how to ride a bike. I'm, I'm almost 40. He's about to turn 38. We were two years apart. We grew up like brothers. I was in my grandparents' home because of family trouble. His mom and dad lived right down the road, so we kind of became like brothers. And So when I was six and he was four, I taught him how to ride his bike. I didn't at six know any great strategies, but it's hard to learn how to ride a bike in the country. We didn't have any pavement or any concrete anywhere. It's hard to learn how to ride a bike on a grass, hard to learn how to ride a bike on a gravel road. So the grass is softer than gravel, so I backed up against my grandparents' home, and, and it's a little sloped going towards the gravel road, and so the objective was to use the hill and my push to give him enough momentum to keep it up so he could get the feel of what it was like to keep his balance. The first few times, he didn't get going fast enough. He fell over, but he was persistent. He kept coming back. You know, I just can see it happening in my mind because he had this little bitty bike that was made up with met, uh, uh, molding around it, made it look like a green dirt bike with a black seat, uh, and, and it was just right for a four-year-old but at the end of and we weren't worried about that because it was so far down there and he hadn't ridden that far yet was a cliff you know my my grandparents had their house was elevated and the dirt road the gravel road had been cut through an embankment and so there was this about eight foot drop that went into the gravel road but that wasn't a concern of ours because we were way up here at the house but he kept falling so this last time 
I'm going to give him the biggest push I know how, and I'm even going to run behind him so that he doesn't fall down. And so I run, and I'm pushing, and I give him a shove, and, and he's, I mean, he's flying. And I keep hollering, I holler, keep pedaling, Jason, keep pedaling, keep pedaling, keep pedaling. And he's pedaling, he's keeping it up, and then, boom, he disappears. Wham. <laughs> pedaling the whole time, he rides over the edge. Nose first into the gravel road, boom. And I thought, oh, no. And then he climbs up the dirt embankment with blood running down his face. And he said, I did it! (laughs) And then we got up and started doing it again. We picked a little safer place. But from that moment on, he rode his bike. He's 38. I bet he still rides the bike. And I taught him how to do that. I gave him the push. But I think this morning about what I yelled to him all the way down the hill. Keep pedaling. Keep pedaling. And maybe if you forget everything I say this morning about keep enduring and keep reading and keep preaching and keep pouring yourself out when life caves in on you, you'll see that four-year-old boy riding in a grassy hill with me hollering, keep pedaling, keep pedaling, because I can't promise you if you keep pedaling that there's not going to be a cliff, and I can't promise you if you keep pedaling that you're not going to come up bloody. That's just part of living life. But when you have the right perspective, one day when you get to the end, you're going to be able to say, I made it. Bloody, battle scarred, this thing hadn't been easy, but I kept enduring, I kept reading, I kept preaching of the difference Jesus has made in my life, and I kept pouring my soul out to God as a drink offering every day of my life, living it for Him. Just keep peddling. I want you to stand with me, if you will, all over this place this morning. There was a song in the moments of my life when I needed to keep peddling that brought endurance to my heart. Whether it was in my grandfather's church as a little boy, in an altar service after a Sunday night meeting, Or whether it was when Haley and I were in Bible college. We didn't have two dimes to rub together. Didn't know how we were going to pay our school bill. Didn't know how we were going to pay for the next meal we were going to eat. Living in an 8 foot wide, 32 foot RV trailer. I can remember thinking, are we going to be able to live? Are we going to be able to go to school? How are we going to fulfill this call? And when I'd be in a chapel service with those pressures weighing in on me. And I would come to the front at the end of a service, whatever the preacher preached on, and I would sit Indian style or I would kneel on the carpet, and inevitably somebody would sing this song. And then the only thing that really mattered would start to matter. I want to ask you, some of you it may be so old it's new, for some of you it will take you back. But I want you to sing this with me and let your struggles, your hardships grow dim as you get your eye on a crown of righteousness and the Lord who's going to give it to you at that day. Sing this if you know it.
Come on, I want you to sing it again because some of you in this room need it. You are overwhelmed. Your life is choked out. But just turn your eyes on Jesus for a moment. This is what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to ask Pastor Bear to continue to sing that and keep this environment worshipful this morning. And I'm going to challenge you today. Some of you just need to spend some time with God. I'm not going to have the prayer team come. And I believe this is a moment where you have the opportunity to just come kneel. Just come spend some time with God and let Him be your encourager, your hope. He promised there'd be days like this but he promised you would never walk alone and if you're in a fight for your life today I believe God's going to give us some of what Paul had to keep us enduring to keep us reading the book to keep us uh, preaching the word to keep us pouring ourselves out just keep peddling maybe you need that today and you just need to spend some time with God I'm going to speak a blessing over you today And if you want to come to this altar and just kneel in the presence of the Lord today, we're going to keep the environment worshipful for you to do that. I encourage you to make your way here while I speak the blessing before the aisles get full of people exiting. If you want to wait till they leave, these altars will be here waiting on you. Just don't rush out of here if you need that encouragement from God today. Father, I pray that you'll bless them and keep them. Special emphasis on the keep them part today, God. Heavy hearts, trials on every hand, will you bless them and keep them? Make your face shine down upon them. Be gracious to them. Turn your countenance their direction today and give them peace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.